SQL Down Under is a podcast for professionals working in the SQL Server community. SQL Server is a trademark of Microsoft Corporation. Opinions expressed in the podcast are individual opinions and might not reflect the opinions of SQL Down Under or of Microsoft Corporation. Introducing Show 80 with guest Pedro Lopes. today is Pedro Lopes from the Azure SQL Data team. So welcome, Pedro. Thank you, Greg. It's nice to be here talking to you. Yes, indeed, in, as we, but not in person. But again, we'll do that one day soon. <laughs> yes, good. one day, one day, we'll be back to normal. <laughs> and so look, what I get everyone to do first up is just tell us a bit about your job role and uh, how you came to be there. Sure thing. So. Um, as you said, I'm in the Azure Data um, Group inside Microsoft, um, and that is a division with Microsoft, if you will, that has all the data solutions from um, the SQL, from SQL Server itself to Azure SQL, but also other other database centers like Postgres, MariaDB, and and and, and others. So I my job specifically is mainly um, with the relational engine. Mm-hmm. In other words, uh, everything that makes uh, a query produce results uh, includes uh, the query processor yep. and, and um, programmability, for example, and some other areas. So I came to be at Microsoft just over 10 years ago, mm. uh, coming from the field. I had, uh, like many, many, probably many of your listeners, being consultants and that started uh, in, in, in the SQL world. I mean, that started just over 20 years ago. Yeah. Um, I started um, managing as a DBA in a, in a, in a small bank back then, as a, as, as a consultant in a small bank, managing SQL 7, SQL 2000, and uh, then just, just understood I liked data and, and managing data and exploring data and, 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 and how I, 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 it was fascinating to see how data could make or break um, a company, uh, the decisions yeah. the company makes for to run the whole organization. So, yeah. Yes. And mm. really, really understood the meaning of being data driven. So um, a few years down the line, I, I was fortunate enough to um, get into Microsoft. This was still um, while I was in the, in the field, as I mentioned, as uh, what was called then a PFE, an organization that has just, had just been formed about a year before I joined. Uh, it's called Premier Field Engineering, or it was called that back then. Yeah. Now it's some other name. In essence, it meant um, that for a few years, I was a SQL uh, fireman mm. going uh, on customers that were hitting some uh, issue, typically performance. That's why I ended up uh, working more. It's, it's something I like very much. And, and it meant that a customer was in crisis. And it was part of my job, together with a number of other people that were on the team and CSS, our support and whatnot, to 
go into the customer and make sure that the problem was gone. So putting out the fire, so to speak. Did you, did you find that stressful at all? The fact that you're walking into, cause you're not walking into average situations every day. You know, it was, it was very early on. It was a bit scary. You're right. Mm. Because um, we were, I mean, we were walking into uh, banks that had outages or insurance companies or retail. Um, mm. And typically it had to do with outages or, severe problems close to that. Mm. And so it was stressful to be in that position, but also it was, it was very, very um, exciting in, yeah. because it, it, I found that's when we, when I got the best collaboration possible, because if, if there's a problem and everyone is interested in solving the problem, uh, and then we'll do a postmortem later. We'll do. Uh, we, we would do uh, assigning responsibilities later. Uh, but that meant that everyone was willing to cooperate, willing to go the extra mile to ensure that um, that whatever problem they were facing got solved. And that was. I learned so much because I basically every week I was seeing something different that I never saw before. Mm-hmm. So that got, got me really interested in uh, in this or opened up this troubleshooting um, interest in me, and um, it's it's something I love to do. I love mm. picking a, par- a problem apart and understanding what's happening, and uh, I, I still do that nowadays, much less. Because... It's good though because I think it also makes you very pragmatic about solving problems. Oh. Uh, it. it... This may be controversial, I don't know, mm. but it does, it does allow me, at least I think it allows me to have some perspective. Yeah. Um, I understand that whenever someone has a problem in the data state, it is the most pressing concern that person or organization has. Mm. It is obviously the, of the utmost importance. It needs to be addressed. It needs to be solved. It's, it's, it's a problem state. Um, and what happens a lot of times, and this, this kind of bridges with my job nowadays as a program manager in, 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 the, in the Azure Data Group, is to how can I translate uh, problems, signals, uh, pains, feedback that we get into uh, technical requirements that will make up a solution in the product, a new feature, a new scenario, and how can I do so trying to understand what what will impact positively impact most of the customers mm. because one thing that's interesting is we'll likely never be able to uh, please everyone yep. and we'll likely not be able to implement every solution or scenario exactly our specific customers thinks we should do um, however, when, when we have, when we approach a new scenario or a new feature, we do so trying to listen as much as possible to customers mm. and then trying from that diverse feedback, those diverse scenarios, distill what's common and, and be a bit pragmatic about how can we, what can we deliver that these diverse scenarios can um, use, maybe not in its totality, maybe having to do some adjustments 
but what can most people in these diverse industries uh, leverage from this new scenario, this new feature? Mm. And sometimes that means that we'll be able to only um, cover 70%, 80% of what you thought we should, yeah. uh, but for, for, for other scenarios, we're covering 100%. It, it all depends. So it's, it's, mm. it's a lot about that. Translating, in a nutshell, translating um, pains and feedback and, and feelings, if you will, to something yeah. uh, more tangible. Wonderful. And so intelligent query processing is what we were looking at talking about today. We had Joe Sack uh, came on and uh, talked about that at the beginning of last year. But things have moved quite a bit since then. And the thing that I, I really liked about this as a concept is that there are so many things where uh, you, from the customer's point of view or the developer's point of view, you do almost nothing and it ends up working better. And it's one of the things I, I used to love back in about 2005, Bill Ramos uh, used to go around the, the world doing sessions. And one of the sessions I, I really sort of liked that he, he had, uh, he was talking about three sort of categorizations of things. There were things that you just don't do anything and the product just runs better. And there were things where you do a little bit of work and you get a whole lot more benefit back. And then there were things where, you know, there's new opportunities if you do a whole bunch of work. But the one that got a lot of people excited, of course, is the, the things where it just ran better um, without you touching almost anything. And, and, and you kind of summarize the intent of the entire uh, intelligent query processing and even more than that, the intelligent database uh, story or track that we have set ourselves into. Hmm. Um, we, we have kind of a, a, a Uber summary or motto, which is the intelligent database um, as a vision should adapt to the constantly changing world of businesses and data. And that kind of tries to distill the concept that there are millions of diverse workloads and, and out there running on, on, on this platform. Mm. Um, and well, when, they, when we talked to Joe, it, they pretty much started into adaptive query processing. And I think yes. the, the one that uh, impressed me the most actually immediately were adaptive joins uh, just because of the potential for that and how often I'd seen that go wrong. Um, and that this was something that could just solve those sort of problems. And, and you just, just one. So the, the, what we've been doing with, with first with adaptive query processing and then turned into the notion of intelligent query processing, mm. in, I, th I think a few months after you talked to Joe last time, yep. and it evolved into the concept of intelligent query processing with the release of SQL Server 2019 and obviously a bit before that in Azure SQL mm. Database, is that what scenarios... Are our, our customers um, hitting blockers, or or what are the more recurrent pain points that every SQL developer hits? For example, you mentioned one with adaptive joins. If we choose, if we choose the wrong type of join, and that the, the plan becomes becomes cached and then reused from then uh, until it gets um, recompiled, if the query processor made a, a, a poor choice based on potentially poor signals it was getting, then it meant that the, the, the out, outcome was an inefficient plan, a poor plan, whatever mm. you want to call it. And so yeah, the intent of adaptive people design... Have, most people have run into that at some time. So it's the, the typical parameter sniffing problem where 
you know, uh, a proc or something gets executed and there's a small number of rows. So it decides to do lookups, whatever. And then the next time it's actually ending up doing lookups on the entire table. And, and they're the sort of ones where you have queries that run kind of nicely, but then all of a sudden you have something that runs for hours potentially. And you, in many cases, people restart the machine or whatever. And then all of a sudden, you know, it's back to running really fast again. So. Yeah, although adaptive joins are not our answer to parameter, parameter sniffing or parameter sensitivity plans. Um, they just handle one, one of the possible vectors that uh, bad parameter sniffing uh, yields for you. Mm. Uh, I think it's also important for your, for your listeners, if, if they're not aware of this, that while we're talking about parameter sniffing or, or parameter sensitivity is a, only a problem when it when it, it, it doesn't work for you, because for the most mm. part, it is a, a by design um, improvement in the engine, something that mm. is highly is desirable. Made... Yeah. <laughs> yes, highly desirable. Thank you. Mm. And so, but there are others, for example, memory grant feedback. Um, if you think about memory grant feedback, which used to work only for batch mode queries back in SQL 2017, and now in SQL 2019, and obviously in Azure works for row mode, meaning every workload potentially can, can benefit from memory grant feedback is another crass example. Um, mm. Actually, again, what am I get you to do, Pedro? And you just mm -hmm. quickly run through for people batch mode and row mode. Good. So uh, that takes us a little bit down a, a memory lane in terms of, of history. Um, mm -hmm. Row mode, if you will, it's, it's how SQL Server has always um, executed its, its, uh, its workloads and, and, and resolved our queries, meaning it accesses uh, data that is stored in rows and, and those, if we only need to take a subset of, you, you read the entire row of a given table and if a table has 50 columns and you are selecting only two columns, we are still reading the, the, the entire row, which means yeah. the record of 50 columns and then just filtering out what we need. Um, that also um, kind of shaped how SQL Server has always executed in terms of scheduling tasks and resolving those tasks. Mm. Now, with the advent of uh, with the advent of Column Store back in SQL mm. 2012, uh, Column Store being a technology that whose whose primary goal is to improve how we can read data in a columnar format. So, for the same scenario that I have a table with. 50 columns, but I only need to get data on two columns. But that data on two columns doesn't have any predicates, any where clause that would filter uh, down the number of rows. Instead, it has, for example, the need to aggregate some data or do some heavy calculation on top of that data. But it's the entire set of millions or billions of rows, right? Column store came about as a way to improve the storage efficiency of these uh, types of, of um, query profiles, if you will. Now, hand in hand with that came batch mode processing. Batch mode mm. processing being a vector-based uh, processing that is very much tied with the capabilities of, of the processors, the processor generation that you were running back then. Um, we would leverage, we do leverage specific process, uh, CPU instructions to be able to do a vector-based processing. In other words, what that means is uh, that instead of data being processed in, 
if instead of us processing rows of data, we process um, binary segments of data. Uh, and that, that means it's much more efficient when we are uh, processing those large data sets that we need to calculate aggregations on and whatnot. So if you will, it's uh, a more, it's an optimized processing uh, method for large data sets that need to do computations on top mm -hmm. of it. And in 2012, uh, I, I used to see the difference where if you were in row mode as opposed to batch mode, the, it, it was just a completely different performance level when it occurred, but the challenge was getting into batch mode at the time. And I remember there was an MSDN article that uh, was reminiscent of a Kama Sutra or something that would tell you what to do to your queries to have some chance of getting into batch mode. And at the time, it wasn't easy. Uh, but that was one of the things that I loved that just improved over time was how e more easily queries could get into that mode. In, indeed. And, and we even saw, um, I, I can't remember who published this the first time, but there was an interesting method to try to trigger a batch mode because as I mentioned, it, 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 its inception was hand in hand with column store. It mm. wasn't until recently with SQL 2019 that we decoupled these two. So that meant that to have batch mode, you needed to have the presence of column store being in your query mm. to trigger, to potentially trigger a query to execute in batch mode. And so there was this um, uh, interesting strategy of creating a null-based column store uh, and then joining with it um, just to make sure that there was a, a physical presence of a of a column store being read, and then that triggered the use of, of, of batch mode. Mm. Um, initially, a query could only be either batch mode or run mode or, or, or row mode. We only introduced um, the ability to do, to do mixed uh, areas, mixed zones in, uh, in a single plan in SQL 2014. So the next generation after SQL 2012. Uh, and nowadays you can have um, areas of the plan that run in batch mode and areas of the plan that run in row mode. Um, and that also poses interesting challenges, especially for um, parallel queries, which is where batch mode excels, obviously. Mm. It's for those large data sets that leverage parallelism. But I was talking about memory grant feedback. And so yeah. the, the interesting thing in that, now that applies to every workload that you can, you can throw at, at the engine, um, is that there, there are a couple of scenarios that can really hurt when, when you're trying to execute um, any workload in SQL Server. Because one of the aspects that is defined uh, when, the, when the query optimizer creates a plan is how much memory will this query require? Mm. That is defined even before execution, right? And, and so if, if, if the engine gets it wrong, you will suffer the consequences at runtime. For example, if you don't have enough memory uh, when, when, when we are actually executing the query and that, that memory, that memory grant, as it's called, is, um, is granted to the query just before it, gets, uh, it starts executing. In other words, if that memory is not available, the query cannot execute and you would, and you would incur in some weights until that memory is available. So if that memory is, if we are overestimating, meaning we're giving, we're, we're, grabbing more memory from the server than it actually needed at runtime, we are creating a huge problem in terms of concurrency. As I usually say, for example, just to make 
arithmetic is very, very easy. If you're in a 10 gig server and, and the memory grants that are estimated are one gig for each of our queries, you're able to run at most, let's say nine of these queries in, in, mm -hmm. in concurrently, right? Uh, but let's say those queries at runtime actually use uh, one meg instead of one gig. Um, that's a hundred thousand times less, right? Uh, if we are able to bring down the memory grant closer to what the, the, the query actually needs, then suddenly with the same hardware, with the same resources, you, you're able to run a lot more queries concurrently. Conversely, if we misestimate memory, meaning that the memory grant is less than what potentially should be used at runtime, um, memory grants in, in row mode, after they are granted, they cannot grow. It's a fixed set. Hmm. So what happens if the memory is exhausted and we are still doing operations such as hash operations or sort operations? We have the infamous spills to MTB. Yeah, it's got to go somewhere. <laughs> yes, it's got to go somewhere. Uh, and so that means IOs coming in and whatnot. So what is the intent of the memory grant feedback? It's to learn from uh, repeating workloads, repeating queries, and see how close are we in terms of, of actual runtime memory that we used versus the estimation. And mm -hmm. then in subsequent executions, it, it tries to uh, adjust those, that memory grant to be closer to what we observed in previous uh, executions, it was actually used. And with yeah, that- I, I must admit, I've run, in, I've run into both. Uh, the, the spilling to disk does happen to me, but not as much as scenarios where you get some crazy large estimate and then, then it's running off trying to acquire an enormous amount of memory. And, and again, where things are constrained, it actually seems to then just go into like limbo mode where it's sort of just almost hung there, sort of waiting, trying to acquire the memory. And sometimes I'm looking, thinking, what is it doing? But you know, it's just trying to acquire the memory required. It's a ton of semaphore weights that were that yeah. much you get. And, and so this, as, as, as you mentioned before with adaptive joins, what is the intent of this feature? That it's the engine recognizes those problem states and solves them automatically. So in subsequent executions, uh, for these two scenarios, the memory would be adjusted in order to make sure that for one, in one hand, we don't waste memory, grabbing more than we need. But on the other hand, we grab enough for these operations that are critical to run in memory, which is where uh, it's faster. Hmm. And, but, but there are others, for example, um, we, we've made, going back to the, to the batch mode and row mode um, topic, uh, we, we've understood that column store not being an option in, in, in every database design, uh, because column store does have um, a few uh, limitations. For example, um, if you have comp persistent computed columns, in mm. your table, you can't uh, implement a column star. Um, if you have something like, um, I don't know, a trigger, you can't implement column star in your, in your uh, table. Mm. So there are a few scenarios where you look at a table, it's huge in terms of both the number of columns and even the, the, the amount of records. And you say, okay, this is probably a table that's being used for analytical queries that need to traverse all this data this is a great use for column store and with column store mm. what 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 comes with it 
batch mode. So you get both best of both worlds, mm. efficient storage, efficient computation over that, that data. But you, have, you hit these, these blockers, right? These, let's say, orthogonality blockers. Actually, um, it's interesting you mentioned persisted computed columns because they're actually one of my favorite things in the product. But <laughs> it, it's the number of things that don't work with them is uh, frustrating. In, in fact, the biggest one for me is that filtered indexes don't work with them. Um, that, that's one that I sort of run into on a regular basis. And I look at it and for the life of me, I've never understood really why they, they didn't work that way. I, I talked to the dev at the time back when that was done Mm-hmm. And he was explaining about computed columns, and I was saying, "Yeah, but if they're a persisted computed column," and and he went sort of, "Ah," oh. <laughs> and and it's been like that ever since. And and I, I sort of look and think, you know, once you have a column that's persisted, it is hard to understand why you can't then index it appropriately with a filtered index. Well, I I surely can't speak about historical reasons. Mm. Um, the the and you're right. Conceptually speaking, um, if if a computed column is it's stored, yeah. the result is stored, and uh, that means why couldn't it be indexed? Potentially, it could. It's really about um, again managing um, from from all the inputs we have, from all the scenarios we need to implement mm. with finite resources. What will impact more users? Um, that want to use the platform mm. uh, versus what is something that, yes, it's relevant for a number of scenarios, but may not be the, mm. the, 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 most, the most impactful for a wide variety of customers, mm. like I was saying before. So yeah, where I've, it's not where like I've we don't want to do it. Sort of thing is in like big transaction tables and things, and they've ended up creating a persisted computed column that, I don't know, in, indicates some state of the transaction or something. And then they just want to index the ones that are, I don't know, open or something like that. And uh, they, yeah, that's, that's where they run into it. So, but anyway, yeah, it's, um, but as I said, as a whole, our persisted computed columns are actually one of my more favorite things in the product. It's good. I've, uh, as, as a dev, I've used them often in, in some scenarios to, mm. to as, as indeed as a, as a way to resolve some performance issues. You are correct. Yep. <laughs> Um, so, but just to conclude what I was thinking about, about, um, batch mode, uh, and the future batch mode on Rose store is that hmm. if you are in that scenario where you see that everything, uh, kind of, uh, conflates to you wanting to use column store and therefore batch mode, but you can't, what, 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 what way forward, what path forward could we give to these scenarios? And that's where this batch mode on Rose store, which is new in Cicle 2019 and in, in Azure comes in. Um, we... If, if we look at a, a scenario where a column store isn't used, but we are, we have, we are running on top of that table, we're running the queries that are, let's say, analytical in nature. And we can, we can detect that through some patterns. For example, mm. um, they're doing aggregations, right? And they really don't have filters that are limiting the number of, of rows that, are, will be, that will be coming from the query. Though mm. There are a few signals about what, what makes up and then analytical query. Hmm. And then if we see that it is, from previous executions, it is a CPU bound. Um, and so we, the, the engine will be intelligent enough to understand that these signals are present and say, okay, um, 
batch mode on Rollstar, this query may be eligible for batch mode on Rollstar. And the fact is, again, no changes to your code. If these patterns are detected, the engine will automatically use batch mode even on your row store indexes. So no mm -hmm. column store instead of using traditional row mode. And so all, all, the, all the plethora of, of features, the feature family of intelligent query processing, it's all about without code changes, with minimum to zero implementation effort, just out of the box, your existing code starts leveraging these features in order to, to provide you the best outcome in terms of performance and also in terms of stability, like, for example, the memory grant feedback issue, yeah. right? Actually, while we're on these, I suppose the next really big one is probably the Scalar UDF inlining. Yes, which is very, it's always been, as, as, as one would expect, a very popular, uh, let's say, programmability artifact for developers, right? You write mm -hmm. once, you use many. Um, they're a very elegant way to, to, for you to achieve code reuse, right? And then to kind of have, create modules uh, that, that, uh, that do a sort of specific task on your data. And mm -hmm. then if you need to use that same uh, module across several areas of your application, you just call that function. It solves the same problem for you, right? Yeah. But the problem is, and, and, and I, as far as I know, Microsoft used to um, uh, evangelize the use of these SQL functions when, when, when they came around in, I believe, in SQL 2000. Yeah. Um, as, as, because these were the benefits, right? Well, but over time, developers have been told abstractions a good thing. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> you know, endlessly, and then all of a sudden, we were telling them, "Oh no, don't do that." Yeah. Yeah, because although some computations, some some complex business rules are easy to express in in a UDF because they're expressed in an imperative format. The point is that the 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 end of the database engine, the SQL engine, doesn't work. In, with, with imperative uh, um, statements. It works with relational statements. So uh, we, we, we found out, the, which is something that is obvious for us today, uh, that there's a, a few scenarios where actually achieving that code modularity would be detrimental to performance. Mm. If you, if, even if you look at the, what, what it can be a seemingly simple query, select a couple of columns from a table, and one of those columns is being wrapped by, by a T-SQL scalar function. If you look at the, the plan for that query, it's very, very simple. You have possibly a scanner or a seek for the table. You have a compute scalar uh, uh, operator, and you have the, the, the root node, the select that gets you yeah. your result set. And the function shown as no cost. <laughs> yes. So if it has no cost, what does the, what does the optimizer uh, do? I mean, it, it acts accordingly. If it is effectively uh, um, an artifact that has no cost, realistically speaking, then the plan that's created for that query that, that in this case calls that, that function is also deemed to be very, very cheap, very low cost. But once you crack open the function, it can be all sorts of things in there. Yeah. And, and so we, we, uh, I spent years of my, 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 my years in the field 
um, we used to run something that was called the, the PTO clinic, the performance tuning and optimization clinic, where I would go in, into, into a customer, look at an application code from, from database standpoint and find all sorts of, of patterns and anti-patterns that we knew over time that the engine could not uh, possibly resolve in the most efficient way and try to find workarounds. And one of which was this. Very simple way of doing it. I'm, I'm sorry you wanted to achieve code modularity, but listen, if you take out these two statements from it within your UDF and you inline them manually in, your, in the query that your application is sending, suddenly the engine knows what you're trying to do and will optimize the query accordingly. Mm. And, and that was the result. But guess what? This is obviously a huge implementation effort for development teams because they yeah. need to then go and refactor their code. That's, and an ongoing maintenance effort. Also that, also yep. that. So that's where, where this uh, scalability DF inlining feature comes from. It's, um, uh, this, this actually stems from, from um, a paper that Microsoft uh, Gray Systems Labs in Madison, Wisconsin um, published uh, about three years ago. Yes, this I read that. It was, uh, what they call it? Freud. The Freud. Freud. Yeah, it was paper, the one. Yes. Yep. Hmm. Um, Karthik was one of the, uh, of the authors there. He, he obviously works in the, in the uh, engineering team nowadays. Hmm. And, and so it was about how can we take those imperative constructs that are inside a UDF, recognize them, and turn them into inlineable relational constructs. For example, taking a, a declare statement, declaring a variable inside a UDF. Mm. How can we inline a declare? Well, as a select, we can select uh, whatever was the expression that was populating the variable, we can do it in line as a select. Or if we have a if else statement inside the, uh, the UDF, how can we inline that? Well, with a case expression, for example, mm. or a return. That'll be another select. So there are a few uh, imperative statements in T-SQL that can be inlined into a query as a relational expression. And that's what the feature does. It recognizes mm -hmm. those statements, those imperative statements, and inlines them automatically for you in the, the, the query that is calling the UDF. So in a nutshell, have you changed your code in the application? No, it remains the same. You were using UDF, um, uh, scalar UDF, fine, you keep using them. But the engine now is able to, let's say, in a very prosaic way, crack, crack that code open, see if there are statements that can be inlined and do that for you. And with that, optimize based on the knowledge that what it will, if in fact, need to do with proper costing being, being in, in effect and therefore being able to create a plan that is much more um, efficient and much more, let's say, um, uh, that translates much more the operations that you're trying to do on your data. Mm. So again, the intent is you don't have to do code changes. The, the, the engine should be intelligent enough to understand when there is a possible use of a pattern or anti-pattern that would not work well for you and resolve those, those situations for you automatically. Mm. Hi, this is Greg. Just wanted to thank you for listening to this show and let you know that if you'd like to let me teach you more about SQL Server, we now have both free courses and low-cost courses available online and on demand. 
The courses include detailed hands-on lab work for you to complete to reinforce your learning, and there are more courses coming in the next few months. You'll find details at training.sqldownunder.com. Then on the subject related to that, of course, there's the table variable deferred compilation as well. Mm -hmm. And yet another classical problem. So historically, obviously, as you know, table variables, um, because they're not, they're only runtime objects, the table variable does not exist at compile time. Um, actually, we should backstep a little bit. Where does, mm. where does the query processor, the, the query optimizer specifically get its estimations from? There's a number of um, there's a number of uh, magic numbers or fixed uh, estimations in the engine for some for some um, models, but mm -hmm. one of the primary inputs are statistics, histograms over the data distribution in a given table, right? Yeah, and and that works for physical tables or for for index use, but however, for a table variable, which is something that only exists at runtime, there are no statistics. So that's when the engine, it's one of the examples where the engine uh, uses uh, um, a heuristic, a fixed estimation or a guesstimation as, as our friend Kimberly Tripp uh, usually says, mm. which is one. Now, tell me, when, 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 when have you ever found that in, in an application that is using a table variable, um, the table variable is, is being populated with just one row or even 10 rows? I would say rarely. Well, actually, I, I get a bit of both. And uh, in my case, though, what I do tend to do is I always stick a primary key in those in a table variable. Mm -hmm. uh, it is the one thing I can stick there. And I figure at least that's going to give it cardinality. So That's not always a possibility. Yeah, right? but that's, yeah. That's, that's one. Mm. And but I mean, apart so, from that, or you could have maybe a unique constraint or something, but uh, basically that's all you can have on those. So You're right, but you're, doing, you're, you're looking at those strategies, first of all, as an expert, mm. and, and second of all, as someone that has experienced that pain before. Um, the, remember that the intent of all these family of features is to even try to remove the need for you to experience the pain first yeah to then <laughs> learn how to yeah. fix it later yeah right? we quickly learn that table variables small number of rows temporary tables yes. big numbers of rows yeah exactly <laughs> so. and so uh what do we do with with table variable different compilation like the name suggests we we will we when we're compiling a statement that references a table variable obviously that doesn't exist at the time that the statement is being compiled mm. so we'll defer uh, the compiling the branches that, that have to do with that, with that table variable until the first execution of the statement. Mm. And what do we do then? Essentially, the query is compiling. We step out. We, let's say, materialize that um, table variable. And so it gets, it gets populated with whatever are, is the number of rows that that first execution mandated it would be populated with. Mm. And we take that actual cardinality and use that number to continue... Uh, optimizing the plan, and then we, we get the actual plan for that query. Now, mm. if uh, we were in a scenario that your table variable um, is, is always populated with more or less the same number of rows, and you were hitting an issue because simply the engine was expecting one row and you were, you were populating that with 1,000 rows or 10,000 rows, then you obviously had a problem there. Mm. And it would then downstream even, even 
get you in problems around uh, memory grants, for example, and, and, and other aspects, right? Uh, if we create a plan based on the actual number of rows, then at least from that perspective, that signal is correct. And the, the query optimizer has a much better chance of doing its job properly. Mm. Yeah, one and of so, the ones that we used to see this a lot with were some of the other methods that just, yeah, have nothing, like uh, the, the nodes method in XML, for example, where it, it was just guessing like crazy big numbers, but I mean, it just had a fixed guess every time. So, um, and I remember yeah, one of the MVPs out of New York one day sort of pointing out that if the, the whole size of the data was only a couple of hundred bytes and there probably weren't 10,000 rows in there, you know, <laughs> and so on. So there might've been other ways to estimate the, uh, the size of it. But yeah, sometimes the fixed sizes of some of those operators uh, also led to some pretty interesting sort of uh, plans, basically. And, and XML data type is, is one such example, I agree. Mm. Uh, it is something that um, I have seen there's a higher potential than, than a non-XML query, so to speak, to, mm. to get the memory estimation wrong. We used to often get a, an XML parameter coming in and I'd immediately push it into a temporary table and then use that in the query. You know, it was, yeah, not kind of what I wanted to do. I, I always sort of wish there was a way I could just give a hint, you know, on the parameter to say, you know, this is going to have, you know, this a nodes method on this is going to return like, you know, 10 rows or something like that. So I could give it a ballpark rather than having it guessing umpteen thousand. Well, you can always use... <laughs> You can always use the top keyword, right? That's already hinting the engine that you expect yeah, X amount of rows. <laughs> yeah, that's a good thought, actually. Yeah, and and it, it does. It actually that 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 in itself um, triggers an optimization in the engine, which is called uh, row goal. Uh, mm. When you have uh, queried with the top keyword or a in keyword or a exists with a condition, um, you, you, just by the sheer fact that you're using those keywords the engine will recognize those and, and, and start a strategy called row goal, which is mm. um, what is the least amount of pages that I need to read in order to return only this amount of rows and no more. Yeah. Um, and, and so especially if you have an, an ordered, if you are not using an order by st uh, um, clause, that means that usually you can get away with reading very uh, a, a much smaller number of pages than otherwise you would for, for resolving that query without the top keyword. Actually, one, one that I'll ask you about too, Peter, the, uh, a trend I see with a lot of developers today that I'm, I'm, I'm not comfortable with is they'll declare enormous numbers of columns as just like varchar max or nvarchar max. In terms of the query processing, you know, what's the downside to that? Well, in, in, terms, of, in terms of the optimizer, um, if, if we're talking about those new, newer, um, newer lob types, it, it won't really make a lot of difference in terms of query optimization. Mm -hmm. um, as you know, for a virtual max, uh, we, we start by storing the data in, in row anyway, in row, yeah. and only, only goes um, off row if, if, if it goes beyond the boundary of a page, right? Mm. And, and so I was just thinking when it's doing estimates on memory though, how does that play out if uh, you have like different sizes in the data types? Well, remember that we take the input from the, the statistics, right? Not only the, yeah. the, the histogram, but there's also a density factor and whatnot. 
and so the 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 record size is is part of the of the inputs. Mm. So that also takes into consideration the the that aspect. Um, what obviously we can we can get that wrong because depending on the filters you use or whatnot, you may hit records that are much larger than others. So then it impacts the 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 memory usage because we've granted memory based on a specific. Uh, getting a specific number of rows mm. that have um, a specific uh, length that they in byte length, and then suddenly if we're bringing in if we're if we're bringing in more rows or or larger rows that will impact memory usage and then we start spilling or something mm. like that, right? Now what so I was has, sort of wondering is what what if they just alias the word string to nvarchmax and just use that for all strings in the database? actually don't know what we would be looking at to be very honest i'd have to test yeah i just got fascinated the other day trying to think about yeah what and i just wondered if it did have any impact in the memory grant area but yeah no it's interesting so i mean because if you look at uh, databases like postgres now you mentioned postgres earlier the uh, i'm again they kind of have you can declare things of different sizes and stuff but they also just have you know string basically and so I'm just sort of wondering, you know, is there any downside to just having a string data type? A string data type. We, we don't have, let me see. Um, <laughs> that is, I, I, I don't think that would, yield a very good result to be honest. No, 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 it feels wrong. I just wondered, I, I'd love to enumerate the reasons why it, fit, why it is wrong, if it is, yeah. It's so. kind of like using the old LOB types. Uh, yeah. The old LOB types are very inefficient. Mm. Yeah, but again, um, they, they, again, had the reasons there where they were stored out of row by default and all that sort of stuff. But uh, yeah, no, it's just a thought, actually. It's a, one I'd be interested to kick around a little bit on another day. <laughs> so the... Um, but the, the other one in this, uh, as we're getting a little tighter on time, the, the other one in this area that I was quite fascinated with were the approximate things as well. Ah, yes. Because so, sometimes you don't need to know exactly the number. So. Good point. So that is actually the only feature in the intelligent query processing uh, family of features that requires you to change your code. Hmm. Why is that? Because it's new T-SQL syntax. Yep. So obviously, to use that, you need to change your your query. Um, th that's a new a new area that we're, that we're calling approximate query processing, and of which approximate count distinct is just the, the first iteration. There are others being being um, discussed. Um, the the intent is, like you said, it's not not every scenario requires absolute precision of data. Yeah. Obviously, I don't want my banking application to be using an approximate count distinct for the number of dollars I have in my checking account. I want to know the exact number I have there. Mm. But think about data science, big data set exploration uh, or, or dashboard scenarios that you need to be um, updating the, the dashboards constantly, which means in the background, you are issuing the same query or same set of queries um, continuously over a given, a given uh, database. So if you think, for example, I actually have a demo on this. Every, everything that we're talking about today, folks can actually see for themselves, not only with scripted demos, but also with, we have uh, SQL notebooks that are, um, that are fully annotated and whatnot. Mm. Um, 
if the, the folks go to https um aka.ms wack iqp demos mm-hmm. um they, they'll get all this material so awesome. this this goes to the one one of the demos that we have there precisely on approximate count distinct is this it's a, a, a simple query that's doing a select count star from a table um, because it's trying to feed into a dashboard what's the count of a specific um, a specific metric. And it is a seemingly um, simple query, right? The point is when you start, when you start looking at um, how the query executes, and it does take a, a second or two that query specifically to execute, you see that it uses a whole lot of memory. Now, in that case, I think it uses something like um, a gig or something like that. So if you think uh, a, a simple select, star, select count star from a table, uh, from a large table, by the way, we're talking about a table that has 25 million or 30 million records. Mm-hmm. Um, it does take all that memory. Now think that your dashboard over, over different uh, tables that have the same or less the same size is issuing one such query every 10 seconds or every 30 seconds, whatever the, 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 the refresh is. Yeah. And maybe it's doing that for the, the dashboard that you have in front of you and some other uh, coworker is doing similar operations over the same data set. Suddenly, you have 10 incoming queries all taking one gig just to do a, a row count mm. um, in, in, in a loop. But maybe for a dashboard that I'm trying to do trend analysis, for example, over those big data sets that have many distinct values, I need to understand the trend analysis. I don't need to necessarily look at the absolute number every time, Mm. right? So what what this uh, approximate count distinct does, this new function, which is um, based on the upper log log um, algorithm, which is also something that's, that's published, is that it will give you not the absolute number, but a, a, a number that has, that is up to ninety, the minimum of ninety-seven percent probability that it gets into, in, it gets you the uh, an approximate enough number, mm. and it only has a two percent error rate. Yeah. What does this mean? Okay, uh, you're not giving me the exact number. You're giving me something that's very approximate, and and it, it in the, even in the demo, I go through the. Uh, through the, the uh, debugging all these numbers and cracking these numbers open and, and showing precisely uh, that the results we get are within these 97% probability. But what's important here is that I get, I get to run my query uh, any number of times over the same data set, getting a number that is very approximate, but instead of using one gig, I use one kilobyte. Of yeah. So suddenly I, I, I increased the ability for my server to run these queries, but still run a number of other queries concurrently because now these are not using that many resources. Mm. And that is the beauty of these, this approximate QP. It's not necessarily in, in the time it gets, uh, the, the, the elapsed time for execution, but being lightweight in terms of resources needed to resolve those queries that really for these scenarios don't require an exact value. Yeah. What's, what's, what you need to understand are the data distributions, not the exact values. And that's what it's for. Mm. And if you do um, an approximate count distinct on, I suppose, the key column, then that's basically an approximate count. It is. Yeah, because yes. there isn't sort of like a separate account, approximate count function. Uh, no, there is, mm. there is 
only the approximate count distinct function, and yeah. otherwise you'd use you'd use the count function mm -hmm. that you'd normally use with a distinct yeah. keyword. No, I think but, that's really but, interesting. I've got uh, things I've been working on lately in timber mills and so on, and there's always this trade-off between things that you're doing on a board by board level and things you're doing at a much more aggregated level and of course dashboards and things yeah that, that's a completely different story i mean the, the exact numbers of boards and so on, it's just not even relevant um, yeah and and that's that's another area that that you are exploring and so i know i know we're running out of time i just wanted to um um talk about another topic that kind of sums up some new work we're, we're, we're doing Mm -hmm. um, so we, we've been talking about a few scenarios that that um, we are trying to solve automatically in the engine. So detecting yeah. those scenarios and then addressing them automatically, and you don't have to change your code. Um, and folks can can learn about it going to the short URL aka.msweciqp. Mm -hmm. um, however, we're working on on other areas. For example, these. If you go and look at the features that are there today, they they only scratch the surface in terms of what patterns or anti-patterns we can tackle automatically, mm -hmm. uh, although they, they already make up uh, uh, what we used to see as a fairly important portion of the, the performance issues that, that we used to get. We're working on another feature that will be previewing in, in 2021 in Azure SQL Database, which is called CE Feedback. CE standing for Cardinality Estimation. Mm -hmm. And so we're, we're taking the next step in this intelligent um, database approach which is uh, to detect when, when um, cardinality estimation models that were used by the optimizer to come up with, the, with, the, with the, the row estimations were perhaps not the most appropriate. And if they were not the most appropriate, adjust those, those model variations through hinting automatically. Mm -hmm. um, and so that subsequent executions then get better plans. I'll give you a classic example. Um, we, we, we usually talk about uh, C70 and C120 plus, or in other words, uh, legacy C and new C, right? Mm -hmm. that, that essentially marks a, a point in time where the cardinality estimation models uh, went through some um, assumption changes. Mm. For example, um, in terms, that was the big change in the card. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And so what happens is, for example, today, if, if you migrate um, a database from, from say, SQL 2008 or SQL 2005 all the way to 2019 or to Azure, um, if you don't maintain your database compatibility level, which, by the way, it's something we heavily recommend that you do mm. maintain it, at least until you're able to test properly. But the point is, sometimes people just over time got used to, oh, I'm upgrading the engine or I'm moving to Azure. I'll just upgrade to the latest DB compat, right? Mm -hmm. So they start leveraging all these features that we've been talking about today. However, we have seen that in, in some cases, those assumption changes that we introduced back in SQL 2014 can, can be detrimental for your workload. Um, for example, in terms of, of uh, the independence assumption, it's one of the, the things that changed. Mm. In the legacy C, for, um, we used to have this assumption that when we were estimating cardinality over a table, let's say that had a few columns, each column was independent of each other. 
So not correlated. Yeah. Although we know that in the real world, for example, if I have a table with customer data mm -hmm. and I have first name, last name, address, uh, zip code, uh, fiscal number, all of that, all those, all that data in the same record in different columns are, is tightly correlated, right? It's highly correlated, yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and, that's, and that's the most preposterous example that it's completely correlated, mm -hmm. right? But the point is the, the, the legacy C did not account for these, this data to be potentially correlated. So mm -hmm. we changed that assumption that when, we, when we're tackling, when, because we use a number of models as statistical models as inputs for the, the query optimizer, we changed that assumption that no, we'll, we'll start with the assumption that the data in the table is actually correlated for the most part rather than being uh, independent. Mm. And that then has uh, consequences upstream uh, on, in the query optimizer as we, as we create query plans. Well, sometimes, as we found, even though, as we just mentioned, this is probably what you see in the real world, but sometimes we saw that the previous assumption was the most correct in terms of the outcome as a good enough plan for that query. Yeah. Or so, people have worked around or redesigned their queries to suit how it did work. Yeah. So, yes. yeah, where I ran into this most, uh, I'd say, is doing upgrades 2012 to 2016 is exactly yeah probably where I ran into it most yeah and that and that's kind of the Achilles heel I mean I I still see that today because there are still customers moving from those older versions even SQL 2012 um, yep to more more recent SQL right and that's where you um, you you can hit this issue now we we have documented for years now and we even have a tool in SSMS itself to help guide you through this database compatibility upgrade motion because mm -hmm. it will you really need to be purposeful about that uh, the the documented process in a nutshell is um, move the database keep the beacon path because if you keep the beacon path the the query optimizer is using the same let's say set of rules and regulations to optimize your query so um, it, it should have if you haven't changed the data if you haven't changed the design of your database like adding indexes or removing indexes and whatnot just by moving the database as is, you will get the same plan. Now, um, the second step would be enable query store being like the, the, um, the flight recorder for your workload, mm -hmm. let it accrue, run your workloads, let it accrue a baseline. And then once you satisfy that you've run through one or more uh, business cycles of your, over your data, then bump up the beacon path to, to whatever is your target, the latest one, for example, mm -hmm. and see how it behaves. Now, because Actually, do you know if that yes. tool now works properly against later versions? Um, and, and the reason I ask that is it one of the only introduced that, last year. Yeah, and no, I know one of the things that uh, used to frustrate me with that tool is that if I was on, say, 2012 and I ran the, the tool, it would tell me any issues that I would have changing the DB compat level to go to 2016 or whatever. But oh, you're talking is, about the DMA if I was tool. already this on 2016 and I had a lower DB compat level, it used to come back and say, oh, no, the server's already at that level. This is a different tool, Greg. Yeah. <laughs> so you're talking about the, the, the DMA tool, the Data Migration Assistant tool. Uh, no, actually, it was the previous. Oh, they, they've all changed quite a bit. But, yeah, one of the, the problems was uh, when I used to run that tool to find out what it thought I needed to change, the problem is it used to check what level the server was at, not what, what level the database was at. So mm -hmm. before you upgraded, it would give you all this hint. 
But if you upgraded and didn't change the DB compat level, when you then ran it on the new server, it would just say, oh no, sorry, I can't give you any advice. So I still think that we're talk you're talking about either the DMA or its predecessor, which was it, the upgrade advisor. Yeah, probably the upgrade advisor at that stage, yeah. And yeah, so that was but, one of the challenges is that uh -huh. if you were on the later version at the time, it wouldn't actually even help you. Grant you, you you're right. If you already are in the latest version, it can it it couldn't give you that that assessment. Yeah, That's and I used to say that already does that. To check the DB level, not the not the server level. But yeah, anyway. So yeah, hopefully the current version of the tooling does that properly. So the DMA, the current version of DMA does that. Hmm. However, that is that is important for you to assess what potential uh, issues you may have uh, with DB compat upgrade before you actually do any work. Yeah. The tool I'm talking about is, is in essence, um, uh, hidden in or, or it's, it's, it's in the context menu of a database in SSMS. If you right-click mm -hmm. a database, you have tasks. Inside tasks, you have a new option there, which is called Upgrade Database. Yep. What it does is it, it goes into a wizard, which is, uh, which what it does is enables a query store for you, asks you to run your workload, in order to create that baseline, right? Mm. And then asks you to come back once you are satisfied that your business cycles have run through the database. Once you do, you'll go to the next step, upgrade ZB Compat, and then what it does is now it's still using the query store to see the post DB Compat upgrade uh, state. And if it finds any queries that have regressed, you can do one of two things. One, if you have enabled um, automatic tuning, the engine will itself understand that there was a regression and it will automatically revert back to the last known good plan. That's one. But that's like saying, okay, the, 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 the new cardinality estimation model didn't work correctly for this query. Go back to the baseline that you have the previous cardinality estimation model, right? This tool, however, will go one step beyond. We'll go to the step that C feedback is now going to do automatically for you, which is let's find which model variation will work better for your query. So that instead mm -hmm. of having to choose between, let's say new CE and legacy CE, no, you, yeah, yeah. you are not going back to, you're not going back in time. You are using the capabilities of the CE version that you're at, but maybe one of the several assumptions that changed back then doesn't work for you. We'll, we'll use a scalpel to change that instead of the hammer, which, which would be just go back. Go back to the old one, yeah, yeah. And so C feedback, which is this that will be previewing in Azure uh, SQL database in 2021, will do that for you. The row goal, uh, um, the row goal scenario is, is for example, one of the, the scenarios that we're tackling with C feedback. Another one is this um, correlation versus independence. Another one is uh, joint containment assumptions. All of these, by the way, are thoroughly documented. In, in, if you look for Cardinality Estimation SQL Server, uh, you'll, you'll find the documentation page that talks about all these. Uh, this feature will, will detect when those scenarios are happening that are not working well for your query and in subsequent executions, address them for you. Much like all the other features that we mentioned today. So mm -hmm. no code changes, the engine finds what's not working right for you and changes those, changes those for you. And, and in your case that you were talking about upgrades, right? And, and hitting those cases uh, after an upgrade, that'll be a thing of the past. Yeah. Because now the engine will be able to detect those. Like magic. <laughs> Almost go. like magic. The intent <laughs> is that you don't need to be a rocket scientist, quote unquote, 
to to be able to to cope with with the expected changes that go through your data sets. Data comes in, data come, is deleted, data is updated. Obviously, that we know as experts in the engine that that means data distribution changes, and and then everything that's upstream from that that we discussed today. Mm. Uh, the intent is that you don't need to be absolutely knowledgeable about all those to be able to get a stable pers- uh, and 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 uh, predictable performance out of your database. Mm. That's so good. Awesome. Thank you so much today, Pedro. Uh, that's uh, been most enlightening, I'm sure. And uh, I'd normally ask where people will see you, but maybe they won't see you at the moment so much. But online, have you got things coming up at all? Uh, yes. So um, I have a few sessions at the past summit, which yes. is coming which, up. Uh, which no, actually, no, it's it after the summit. But yes. Thank you. Go and watch I also, the recordings for those. Yeah. Uh, yes. Thank you. And I also have um, a session at the DPS uh, right. summit, and that is with my friend Joe Sack. Yep. And um, yeah, I mean, I have tons of videos online, including um, uh, SQL bits and others. Um, they're all in my LinkedIn page, for example, or I'm also, I also have a presence in, in uh, Twitter. You can always look for me and, and, and hit me up if you have any, any questions or feedback. Um, I'm, I'm always happy to hear about what people are experiencing with our, with our uh, database engine, what, what they have in terms of feedback, because that's what, that's what feeds the next generation of features and scenarios that we're mm. trying to solve. Magnificent. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you very much. Talk to you soon. Bye. That's all good.